0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of replaceable blade knives, fixed blade knives, and game processing kits. Now we've all been there before trying to field dress your wild game with a dull knife this is where outdoor edge really steps in with the razor safe system you can have a brand new razor sharp blade with just the push of a button no more dull blades and no more problems processing your wild game to check out all of the products from outdoor edge visit outdooredge.com and at checkout enter the discount code nation 30 that's nation O N three zero for 30% off of your purchase.
1: Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. <laughs> Alrighty, everybody welcome back to another land and legacy podcast i'm your host matt Dye, and i've got our second host for the week online frank how are you doing sir
2: i'm well matt i'm well how are you
1: i am doing good i can't good. complain um good. well i guess i can't complain a little bit i'm a little down and out uh i've got covid oh wow yeah nice. i i uh I got tested last week, kind of felt like um oh, something's just not right. I just not much energy and I'm just like, ah oh, man, what's going on? Yeah. And I was like, ah oh, I think I, I think I got I it finally caught up with me. Finally got me. Sure yeah. enough, tested, boom, got it. But I'm lucky because um I've really fared pretty well through it and it's been just a couple of days, so not uh not keeping us or keeping me and my wife down too much. We're just home um staying here and gonna eat out of our garden today and Oh wow, well good. Just, you know, do our thing. So yeah, we're we're fortunate well. it's not kicking our kicking our rears.
2: Yeah. Well that's good. I'm glad to hear you're you're faring well. We've our family has has managed to stay covid free, <laughs> so we're we're fortunate. Very um, good. we're fortunate in that way. But um yeah. Um we'll be praying for you for you guys
1: thank you sir i appreciate that thank you thank you um but today on the podcast we we are going to do something almost like a little bit of a throwback type podcast something that um adam and i did uh pretty frequently i would say it's probably been a year or, or more since we've done one of these but this is just a property breakdown um so encouraging Everyone who's listening right now, to go to social media and click on um, most recent post. probably on, a, on Tuesday morning, this, this image will, will be available for you guys or, or Tuesday midday to be able to listen, to, excuse me, to be able to look at why you're listening to the podcast and use it as a reference to guide you around a recently toured property in Northeast Alabama. And so what we're going to do, Frank, is, is talk about each one of the points, uh, the waypoints here on the photo, um, to reference what was seen and then what was recommended on that said property.
2: Great. Sounds good. Sounds good. These, these are, these are great exercises, uh, for the listeners to, to participate in and, um and test themselves on a piece of property that they've never seen before in their life. And, and just, and kind of, how would they break it down? How would they do it? Do they agree with some of the things we're talking about? Would they do some things differently? And it's, it's just a great exercise for people that are, um, ex- unexperienced land managers to, to get in and, and, and join with us and, and break this down. So
1: this is exciting. Yeah. And I think, I think what allows, uh... To do is is for us to then like allow people to go through that thought process that okay here's what they saw here's the recommendation and here's how they got to that recommendation why this element needs to be changed why something needs to be added um, and and what that ties into the whole grand scheme of thing um, so with I I think that that really helps let's say paint the picture of. How do we make these decisions? How do sure. we say because there's you and I both know there's oodles and oodles of options, routes that we could go, and and truthfully too, um, I, I, we we've worked numerous properties together, Frank, and I would say ninety percent of the things that we do and see and we encounter. Um, we both like agree on we're like okay yeah that that's what needs to happen here that's just yep. that's just right. easy no brainer right. but there's always this and this is the same thing between Adam and I um you know when when and if we work properties together we might say 90% of the time this is what we're all going to do but there's that 10% that's like oh <clears throat> he saw it a little bit differently than I am and that yep. 10% variance is is not right or wrong it's it's just like the creativity of how can we take that and make it a little bit different and so Uh sometimes it's it's fun it's more work honestly because you're you're having to go back and forth with it with another consultant but I love hearing that 10% of creativity that that you bring to the table and I like hearing it from Adam as well um so it, it's always cool to be able to share that. So as we're breaking this down, obviously all these recommendations are relative to the goals of the client, but there's still little, you, you might look at it and say, Matt, did you consider this? Or Matt, yeah. why did you not, why did you say to do this here versus that? And um, obviously this this uh, picture that that we're referencing. This is not like the plan that that the client will receive. Right. Um, this is simply just a a a waypoint to move questions through, um, uh, carry on a conversation with, and, and to reference back. This is obviously not a finished product by any stretch of the imagination. You and I both know they look drastically different from this. But this is going to give people that image of, and and the discussion of how do we move through. A, a given property. But before we start doing that, let's take a quick second and thank partners Vortex Optics. Guys, if you are summer scouting or planning to uh, start shooting your bows, it is that time. Be sure take some glass to the field. If you're needing new glass or if you want a combo of binoculars and rangefinder for the fall or shooting, dialing in for this fall check them out vortex optics.com or check out their vortex wear their apparel line just released some new summer swag stuff there use code legacy 20 at checkout vortex optics.com check them out guys all right frank <coughs> you want to dive in here where, where, yeah. where would you like to start like well I guess I should say this too. I think I mentioned that it's Northeast Alabama, but this is site-wise roughly 250 acres.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's dive into this property. And and what I see when I look at it um, from the air and and on the map is, is it looks like a piece of ground that's relatively equally split between some type of wooded landscape and some type of open landscape. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and that can mean two very very different things so wooded landscape could be anything from a, a dense closed canopy forest a closed canopy pine forest or or a closed canopy hardwood forest or a more open landscape uh, or more open open woodland and it could be anything it could be ag or it could be pasture so um let's let's have you break it down what are we looking at and there's and there's probably four distinct little forested or wooded landscapes one's much bigger Mm -hmm. and it predominantly i mean it's the predominant uh, cover type in the south part of the area but there's there's a couple of distinct segments on the north so i think for the first part here let's break down these wooded landscapes what are the what is the the structure in terms of of the openness or closed Canopy structure. What are you looking at in terms of species composition? Let's break that down first. That'll give us a good place to start.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. Um, obviously, with Northeast Alabama, you, you brought up the point. You gotta you gotta ask yourself pretty quickly. Off, I've, I'm in the Southeast. What's that? What's that pine to hardwood um, ratio? And and in this particular portion of Northeast Alabama, it's not your your general pine plantation production this is um still got a lot of terrain aspects to it not that you can't grow pines in in some terrain however uh, that's just not the common land use type right here in in uh, this portion of the state so what we're looking at is your general mixture of hardwood and softwood species um in in most of these timbered units all but one of these units is 100% closed, can't be. The the, the unit in the very northeast portion of the property has got a red waypoint on it. Yep. (laughs) Excuse me. It has got a mixture of post oaks, blackjacks, hickories, and a dense understory of Chinese privet in it. However...
2: Go ahead. So let me, yeah, let me let me interrupt you through. So you, so you mentioned post oaks and hickory. So right off the bat, I'm thinking, okay, that's a drier site. That's a dry site. Post oaks grow on dry sites. A mm-hmm. lot of hickories grow on dry sites. Yep. That's probably um, a historically a, a much more open landscape if those species are present and if the soil type is kind of what I'm thinking it is.
1: Yeah. Is that correct? That's a hundred percent correct. There was exposed rock. Um, so there was quite a bit of surface rock in this wood, wood lot. And so, um, when I got in there, I certainly took note of those species, just, just like you talked about. Um, it has a South facing exposure, uh, but wow. it sits very high. You actually, from, from that Northeast portion of the, the property, you could see probably 10, 20 miles South of you. I mean, wow. it, it's a long, long view. So, um, Definitely one of the higher points. Honestly, even in, probably in the high in the whole county. Um, but then, two species <clears throat> and and the the spacing canopy structure of those residual trees was like, man, this is very very remnant like of a savanna. Okay. And the but the mid story was just, it was very difficult to see because the mid story was very dense with Chinese privet that had grown up underneath it, but there was great species um, there was a little bit of little blue stem, some broom sedge um, and then a ton of a woodland sedge i've seen growing in uh, another farm, not too terribly far from this one actually uh last summer I, I worked in so very remnant of of uh what I would say, a potential savanna site. Certainly Mm -hmm. a woodland, but but with the space in those trees, and there's a lot of the, let's say, volunteer hickory, some smaller diameter stuff, not as much of the bigger crown that had grown up in this site as well, but obviously adjacent to it, it had been farmed. There's 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 an ag field right next to it, but this site had never been turned because of that surface rock.
2: Sure, sure. So... That that tells me that um, one of the things that probably we would recommend there is to get some disturbance mm. in that site because that site wants to be an open woodland. It's got the, the surface characteristics as far as the exposed rock, the thin soil, the the trees that are there, the species that are there. It tells me that we want to to restore this into a more open landscape. And so I'm thinking right off the bat, prescribed fire would be a a good recommendation, just a no brainer right there. And it's a fairly easy site to to burn with the predominant south wind because you've got that ag field straight north of
0: there. So
1: I'm that's one of the things. Oh, I lost you right there for a second. I got you. There we go. So, yep. y- yes, you're absolutely right. That That's definitely going to be a recommendation for, for fire to be frequent on that site. Based on that, the the index of the site, the species that were there, um, the growth tendencies of those species. But but there was just certainly a mechanical aspect that needed to come in um, and, and reduce that Chinese privet, cut it, treat it, and, and use prescribed fire. Still probably go in and thin some of the... Um, the hickories that had grown up as well sure. open up that uh overstory even a little bit more and from a from a deer perspective as we'll talk a little bit later this this portion of the property it holds some deer but mm-hmm. we really would like to see structure on the ground in this unit to hold deer bedding wise. And we'll talk about that why why in in just a few, Um, but whether it's dropping some of the canopy, letting it lay and, or going back through and planting additional shrubs in this unit will be necessary because we do want deer to bed in that unit. So although it's a Savannah or we may restore it to that, we want that woody structure present in this site for offering quality bedding throughout throughout the entire year. And American Beautyberry was seen growing in here as well. Oh, great. So
2: That's it, a wonderful native shrub yeah. that we, we see in these remnant um, nat- natural communities, these open natural communities, that, that really tells us, hey, we're working with a landscape that was probably open
1: in the past and, and really wants to be that way now. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So that was so what, general yeah, speaking of, of that site, that, that, that kind of sums it up and it's about six, seven acres, somewhere right there in that.
2: Well, and, it, and, and I, there's a point I want to make mm-hmm. is from a, from the standpoint of the farm itself or the landscape, that's not a very big unit, right. but it is an important unit because it is, it has its potential to, to be turned into a, a more natural community and that is that is critical from from a from a wildlife standpoint but also from a community standpoint there's a lot of native species in there that can be restored probably they're they're very limited on the landscape so while it's while it's very small that is a unit that I would really want to pay particular attention to because of its potential to have more native remnant species than maybe the remainder of the of the farm.
1: Fantastic, fantastic point. And then you're absolutely right. It was kind of a, a little bit of a forgotten piece and you can kind of see it's a little um disconnected from other portions of the property or, or other larger wood blocks. You know, it can be good. There's pasture to its east. There's Ag to the north and Ag to the south and southwest. Um, with a little strip of timber, so so there is some so there is some movement back and forth, but comparatively speaking, many deer who who are traveling to that aren't going to do it a lot during daylight hours as That's as right. it sits right now because right. Um, you know just just it's the lack of connectivity and security of cover moving from one unit to the next, and so. Um, that kind of takes us into really another point to be made. And that, that's that blue waypoint that is southwest of this, on the kind of the southwest corner of this six-acre block. Yep. <clears throat> There's a little swale in this field um, right there at that waypoint. And so yep. what I've recommended happen is to uh, take portion of – this ag field out of production about a 30 yard swath connect the southwest corner of this six, seven acre wood block all the way down across to the point that you'll see outlined in red on the map and create and, and do so with a, you know, a native planting. If you want to, if, if they pursue it, they can potentially do maybe a, a CRP option um, mm-hmm. Through there, because there's another portion of the, the property, the further blue waypoint, that right. little inlet down there. Yep. That I would also like to see in the exact same prescription for the purpose of connectivity. Right. Simply and me, give a wildlife corridor.
2: Absolutely. But not seeing the site, but just looking at it from the air, I would imagine that that particular site is not easy to farm because of that swale that's there. It's probably fairly prone to erosion. It's probably hard to get equipment through there. And so removing that small piece from, from farming, and especially if you can get it into a CRP option and make a little money on the cash rent, you might the farmer may be money ahead to not farm that little piece and get the wildlife benefits out of it. And I've seen that so many places on properties that you and I have toured Mm -hmm. or other properties that I've been involved with managing. There are places that people traditionally farm because they always have, but it's hard to farm. It's hard on equipment. It's erosive. But they, they do it because they've always done it. But if you give them different options, you know, they may be money ahead or even if they're not money ahead, they may, it may just be simpler for their operation to put that into a wildlife corridor and just walk away from it in terms of farming. And yeah. I think this may fit really well on this particular um, swale that we're talking about.
1: Yeah, it, it, it really, man, even before, so we, we did a quick little like drive around the farm first, and then we got out and walked it. And I looked, I took one look at the map, and then as we're driving, I already broached the subject before we even started getting out and walking that, that northern end. I was like, guys, what's the feasibility of this? And, and they're like, oh, it might be, a, we might be able to do that. I hadn't really thought about that. But <clears throat> just from the movement of wildlife, it was it was 100% necessary to try and increase the amount of daylight activity that they're going to see of deer moving across this field. Many uh, of the hunting strategies that, that they've employed on this place were hunting in the field edges because there was no definitive movement of deer in the timber. And they kept bumping them. so now they kind of pushed back out and are hunting field edges but there's not enough daylight activity in the fields that is really why they're frustrated because they feel like they can't hunt the timber but then they're not drawing them to the fields during daylight hours so now it's like how do we how do we do that right give them the opportunity to cross this opening in daylight but in cover, that right there changes the ball game and will very easily increase that movement at the right times of, uh, of the day. But also <clears throat> kill two birds with one stone and create additional habitat or cover for quail. Because, Frank, guess what there was there? No, don't tell me. Oh, yeah. They were singing oh, like wow. crazy. Oh, that's great. And, and that's great. And it was one of the deals that they had not, they'd gone years without hearing quail. And then, like Uh last, I I think they would say two to three years, all of a sudden, quail just started singing. And they sang the entire day that I was there, all around the house, all around the old chicken barns up there. So, (coughs) excuse me, that corridor is going to connect and then just be additional opportunities for um vegetation that is 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 useful for quail so what you're
2: telling me is is there were there were males calling from these higher spots on the farm and and using the experience that that i've had in 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 quail ecology and kind of knowing what's going on probably these are males that are spread spreading out through the landscape looking for females they're they're setting up calling posts but probably the covey. Locations, the, the fall and winter covey locations are probably off of this property uh, because there's probably not a lot of herbaceous winter cover or shrubby cover to keep them going. But if we start putting in herbaceous corridors that have a little shrub component here and there throughout this farm, what's then going to happen is likely birds will start to nest in these herbaceous corridors and you'll get covey locations fall and winter covery locations established on this farm. So that may not be the goal of this landowner, but this is a side benefit and a great side benefit in my opinion of establishing herbaceous corridors throughout a piece of property. You increase daylight deer movement, but then you increase usable space for Bob White, which there's obviously birds in the landscape. So um, I, I think the I think this landowner would will will really benefit uh, in more ways than, than increased deer movement by, by putting in these corridors.
1: Oh, absolutely. And that was one of those things that there was the, uh, I will say, the, the heritage tradition kind of respect for the bird. They enjoyed hearing them. They didn't have um, an interest in pursuing them just because right. they knew they were pretty rare. But as a childhood, the father had pursued birds after school on, on the daily because there oh, yeah. birds all all around this area, yeah. and um, they were just happy to hear, and and they they knew that doing this corridor, like you said, would be an added bonus um, and benefit to uh, the existing quail that were on and using the property at the time. So, you'll 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 certainly see at some point a corridor stretch across there, but <clears throat> we can't. We're going to have to harp on this corridor for a little bit longer, if you're okay with that. Because Absolutely. everyone's also going to see on the map here a red outlined unit that basically would connect to this corridor to that, that initial pocket of timber we talked about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that portion of timber has an eight-foot-tall fence completely enclosed around it. Yeah. So...
2: That's got to be an impediment in
1: itself. Absolutely, it is. Years and years, and years ago, um, it potentially uh, pursued raising a couple deer, and so yeah. that fence is still standing, and it is a it's an absolute wall and a barrier, and so that that cutout th- uh, of the property that's due west of there, based on the terrain. And the mm-hmm. open acres on this property, and then on top of that, the permanent structure of that fence that is uh, that is impenetrable, shoves all the deer activity further west onto a right. neighbor. <clears throat> so, not only do we have to create that corridor to bring that activity and connectivity back to their side of the fence, that that. I say let's say their side of the property that fence has to come down to allow for movement up and down that entire corridor and move the majority of that deer activity off the neighbor and onto their property right so what did was this a was this a kind of a wel, welded
2: wire or a hog wire type fence yes yes so so that so kind of off subject those types of fences are terrible for turkeys. How many times have you seen a gobbler or hen or whatever run up and down a hog wire fence because they can't figure out how to cross it. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, and then certainly, and they just don't, eventually they may fly over, but but more likely than not, they'll run up and down and poking their o's through the fence. And they're terribly susceptible to coyotes, to bobcats that are in pursuit of them because they get hung up in this fence. So, so, it's a double whammy there. You could potentially be having some some predation loss from just random accidents of, of mm-hmm. turkeys running into these fences because they can't get through, and then you're you're restricting movement on your farm. So what a great idea to to get rid of that fence and and um establish a corridor on on, on this piece of property. And deer are going to you know absolutely love to use that because they really haven't had access there before. Yeah. So a novel place that they'll certainly check out.
1: I would have assumed that, you know, this farm hunted almost as two separate blocks, a North block and a South block because mm-hmm. of the lack of the, of connectivity. And, and the only option was a hundred percent exposure in that field to cross from North to South or South to North, All right? unless they went on the neighbors. And so um, that's that story kind of kept ringing true as asking questions about, you know, they're in the field observations, hunting, this and that, success of the neighbor, <coughs> so on and so forth. And then getting boots on the ground is so, so apparent that that fence needed to come down and we gotta, we gotta have this structure and corridor vegetation moving across this property. So <coughs> another cool feature, um, is is the western portion? Let's let, you know stay up on the north side here, but that other red waypoint mm-hmm. on the west side, so west facing slope and, and some south facing aspect there. Twenty um, year old clear cut. Okay. What what do you know about twenty year old clear cuts, and and what what do you think species wise you could find in northeast Alabama? Well, I'm thinking. Okay, clear cut is going to come back probably in a lot of sweet gum. There's probably
2: going to be, um, you know, a lot of young oak species, a lot of young young hickory species. But I wonder if sweet gum is a problem in there because I know it it can be whenever it gets released and gets some gets some competition off of it um, that it could that it could be a problem. So I'm thinking it's it's probably a pretty thick mix of, of maybe some stuff chinese privet you mentioned chinese privet in the other yep. in the other block there's no reason why it wouldn't be in that block mm-hmm. given um all the sunlight that it's it's reaching the ground now i can imagine that 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 is a pretty big component
1: so you're you're hitting the nail on the head <clears throat> but one thing that was not mentioned was tulip poplar and there was a lot wow. of tulip poplar in here more so than sweet gum. And, and I, I normally would have said sweet gum yep. would have just been 100% dominant. And and <clears throat> on other sites uh, or other portions of this property, it was pretty dominant. But here, tulip poplar was um, definitely the, the dominant species in the region and would be if, if there was not um, some stepping in, intervening here in the future to guide the forest here. But... Hmm. This site is a perfect place for a bedding thicket or actually two bedding thickets to be installed. And the other cool aspect of this um, portion is there is a boundary road fr- on the north end yep. that goes across the north uh, property line all the way down the western boundary and comes out in the south corner and jogs back to the east. So, oh, wow. Okay. And it has a row that splits the middle as well of that block. So you have a north block and a south block on on that portion of the timber. So really, you have, you have multiple burn units, and there will be multiple bedding thickets in there, different regeneration. So um, it, you'll have south and west-facing slope bedding adjacent to a crop field and then, Frank, if if you were planting a food plot <coughs> or you had, let's just say you were a landowner and you had an ag field and you're like, hmm, how do I maximize this ag field for deer hunting and I'm in Alabama? What would you say would be the best, what would you say would be the most commonly Use technique versus what we may prescribe in that region over
2: okay, I'm gonna say <clears throat> green fields like wheat um, plots um, I know that's that's a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, maybe maybe some other kind of, of you know fall annual species that you know oats or something like that but but hunting green fields I think would be would be big putting putting some wheat plots out there. Um, and I guess that would depend on what would be out in the ag field, but I think that would be a common, a common thing, but, and I, and I'm just kind of, you know, we're just kind of talking here. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things that they don't lack is, is potential agricultural type food products, soybeans, corn, you know, wheat, whatever that is, but what they do lack is certainly, um, forbs and weeds and herbaceous forage and shrubby forage uh, like american beautyberry or dogwood and some other things that that we we know that they love to forage on um, I think that's probably lacking I would it looks like there's plenty of crop agricultural related food types to me i would I would lean more towards the herbaceous forage especially in a farm that looks like it doesn't have very much of it
1: yeah, so yeah. Well. I mean, there were there was <clears throat> what we saw was a lot of wonderful plant species, and and um, let's say browsing species for for white-tailed deer, which was our main focus. Uh, I mean, there was Virginia creeper, poison ivy, desmodium, pokeweed, blackberry, dewberry. Um, all those species were present everywhere we went to in in the understory, but they were. In the closed canopy sections of the forest, they were ankle high. Yep. Yeah. When we went to the area in the northeast, they were two to three foot, sometimes even four foot tall. <laughs> yeah. So, so the um, the species didn't change all that much, but the the cover that they provided and the amount of forage that they provided definitely changed with the increase in sunlight so <clears throat> yes not only would we in this area be knocking out some holes in the canopy one to two acre type in you know in size but then managing that forest to be <clears throat> way more open than its closed canopy nature 20 years after a post clear cut sure and sure. what
2: go ahead what was the was there potential for um or was there oaks or potential Mm -hmm. mast trees available in that, that um, could be released and and really improved in that piece of ground?
1: Yes. No, there there definitely was enough regeneration of oaks to steer the forest into more of a hard mass producing forest down the road opposed to what it was right now.
2: Well, that's something I would certainly want to emphasize is, Mm -hmm. is, is, is make sure that that, um, That is thought about, you know, some some potential crop tree release and make sure you've got some good hard mast in that, in that piece of, piece of timber on that side.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and what's, what's nice is with that ag field directly, you know, adjacent to pretty much these, these bedding thickets is they're going to have the ability to go 45, 60 days before their frost in late October and overseed into that crop field, essentially whatever that they want. Unless it's a it's a uh, rotation of wheat that year, <clears throat> they're going to be able to go in and fall annual blends, turnips, brassicas, wheat, rye, triticale, annual clovers, whatever they want, whatever combination that they choose, yep. walk down yep. and broadcast that right into uh, that ag field. It's, it's not going to inhibit or... Um, Stop the farmer from being able to harvest that field if the crops aren't out at that point, and they're gonna have really whatever size that they want they could go up to three four five acres in size and have a large like like you mentioned earlier a large green field yep right next to these bedding areas and I said green field, not grain field right because of their location does it get cold in this portion of Alabama yes there oh, there, yeah. there are sometimes um i mean we're 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 the foothills of the Appalachians right up there but is it consistent enough to leave standing grain opposed to 3 or 4 or 5 acres of greens no yeah, no no those greens are going to do do just as just enough <laughs> and and that doesn't have to be the only plot obviously left on this farm I'm going to recommend others to be to be done so <clears throat> there's going to be ample food left but use that open ground to their advantage in proximity to cutting in these bedding thickets of young growth and that's that's yeah. the cool thing there's there's a mixture of poplars sweet gums but there's additional species like red maple, black gum, elms, and other varieties of oaks that, <clears throat> with all that being cut, some of those non-desirable species of, of preference from foraging, like tulip poplar and the sweet gum, they're a little bit lower preference that we see commonly. Right, right. those would be treated more than the others. But there would be so much forage both winter spring summer right here in these areas <clears throat> fall that my gosh where, where else would you hunt i'm, yeah, going, I'm well, going there
2: absolutely and and that is a great example of some of the the most low hanging fruit that, that i see a, a a land manager in a in a ag dominated landscape can do is hand broadcast a mix of cover crop in these growing crop fields, like you, you know, 40 to 60 days before harvest. Mm-hmm. It's not going to affect harvest. So you do that, you, you increase your, your deer forage exponentially doing yeah. that, yeah. you build organic matter. We don't even talk about the soil benefits of doing that. And, right. and there are a lot of places people can get the information to look at the soil benefits of, of planting cover crops that have have deep rooted um bulbs and tubers that can go down and pull up nutrients i mean that's a whole nother podcast but it is such a low-hanging fruit but i see so few people do it that's right i it it is it's becoming more and more common i see more people do it than i did say a decade ago but it's just such a simple i mean the seed costs a little bit but in the big scheme of things, it's not that much, and it just is a simple thing to do, <clears throat> low hanging, and it's and it's and it's going to grow. You put it on top of the ground, get the fall rains, bam, it's going to grow. Yeah, um, we can't recommend that practice more. Um, it, it's
1: it's just so easy to implement, and it's so it's. Where else do you have so much sunlight? How else can you better capture it than young, attractive? Forage that carries them through a winter time frame and attracts them and pulls yep. them out into the opening like, it's right. just like one thing on top of another it's like you're crazy if you don't do that and you have that open ground and ability to do so you're yeah. you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot and, and really taking acres that could be working for you during the fall and winter and and just leaving them hundred percent idle
2: yeah and and it and it's a great way to to improve your like you said your hunting it, it draws animals out but you can kind of steer them and position them where mm-hmm. you you have the ability to hunt and and where your particular stand sites are or whatever it is you know by putting this green forage out there you can pretty much steer the deer where, where you want to be and it, and it really is a practice that that i wish more and more folks did and and um because it's so easy i, I remember we we had a a consult you and me out in far western Kansas. Uh-huh. And um the gentleman had um, you know, some very, very little timber resources out there from a, you know, from, from a traditional landscape when you're thinking about timber resources. A lot of, you know, shelter belts sure. and things like that. <clears throat> and, and and so out there, you know, deer can move through those big ag landscapes or through a big CRP field pretty easily and may not be easy to pattern. Right. So one of the things that we recommended on, on this gentleman's farms, and he had several different farms, is doing some of this planting of this of this green fall cover crop along areas where he is able to get a tree stand, because there's very limited trees for a tree that's stand, right. but, but steering sort of the deer activity in that. So it can be done across the country, really, and it really is a good
1: practice. It, it is. There's no place that's like, Oh, I I probably <clears throat> wouldn't do that in that region. No, there's a there's a crop to fit the the bill for whatever region that you're in. I just wanna capture more energy and plants during a, a portion of a growing season that's gonna attract deer, hold them, and supply more food and tonnage and time frame that it's gonna be rather limited. And it's catching on, more people are doing it, but <clears throat> they could potentially easily be some of the only good quality green sources around sure there's other ag fields but if those people aren't doing cover crops or they're not overseeding from a food plot standpoint then then you're pretty much one of the only food sources around and that's a yep. good that's a good place to be Absolutely. Um, in a neighborhood that yeah there's hunters all around this property I want to stick yeah. out. I want to be I want to do something different. And that yep. was just too easy. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah, that's great. That's great.
2: Well, before we get away from this crop field <laughs> completely and talking about the, the corridors and, and get into the to the heart of that southern portion, there is um right in the middle of the area there's a uh, it looks like three fingers of open land that kind of go from run from north to south there's, uh-huh. a, there's a blue um, waypoint there and so from a, a a land management standpoint those look like key areas because they're, they're small those look like key areas for a couple of things uh a, a wildlife corridor there to to kind of um assist movement north and south yep or some, maybe even some native whole field restoration. If if the farmer was interested in that, um, I would imagine those fingers they look steep. There's some there's some pretty good contour on them. Mm-hmm. They may be hard to farm. Um, if I was if I was going to be um, writing the, the pre- prescription for this, I would I would broach the subject with the landowner. Hey, maybe we can do a CRP program and do a whole field for native grass reestablishment program there, something that that, right. that will benefit a, a wide range of species. So my point is there's a lot of different options for those sort of three fingers oh, there out, is. of crop ground. Like
1: <clears throat> Absolutely. Absolutely. There is. Um, one of the things that definitely will be done is the, the furthest open finger to the West. That's what I'm prescribing. Put that back into, into, Uh, or put it into a crp type planting to facilitate movement straight Mm -hmm. up the gut right up into that other corridor connect um all of them especially when that fence is is gone and removed move deer straight up through there and um the other ones aren't as bad and then one of them like from a from a, a hill erosion standpoint it's really not terrible but one of them, the one furthest to the east, has a there's a there's a woods road um that is the main connectivity from that field to the chicken barns in the woods. so I mm-hmm. did not put that one in a in an area to encourage any type of <clears throat> potential bedding from be, because I knew that that was a key access point. Got it, got it. but it is it from an eye standpoint. Yeah, if, if if I was doing like a VPE virtual property evaluation, I may suggest mm-hmm. something like that. Um, if I did not know that there was a road there very easily, but those ditches do have a good opportunity to have some good edge feathering done around mm-hmm. them. A lot of Chinese privet along that edge, but cut, drop, treat those, expand that edge, and you got a lot more things working for you along, up and down those edges
2: absolutely and you'll provide cover for the the quail that are on the property mm-hmm. too so you will get some benefit from that so let me <clears throat> step back a minute um and, and when we're talking about these herbaceous corridors and the crp type plantings there's a lot of different ways you can go with that and traditionally i know it's um uh, and especially in in the white-tailed deer world which is a little bit different than than more the the upland game type stuff but traditionally you're thinking you know, switchgrass or or some tall, big blue stem that gets pretty tall and pretty thick. And if I if I know you like, I think I know you. We've <laughs> had a lot of these heart to heart conversations. Yep, we've even done some videos of this stuff. Man, I think you could get away with some little blue stem with some with a heavy forb component, and that could work just as well as a monoculture of switchgrass planting. So, oh, what are your thoughts sure. on on that?
1: Yeah, no, I, I'm 100% uh, on board with that. <clears throat> I think a, a deer, we we got to look at the anatomy of a deer to really understand what they constitute as cover and what they feel safe in. And you know, when you look at them, they've got a long like periscoping type neck. So as long as, and, and they stand three and a half foot tall, right? Mm-hmm. So and that neck is up higher than the rest of their body. So that means that their body is like two and a half to maybe three foot tall off the ground. Yep. So that's all that's the only the height wise that I need vegetation wise vertical structure for them to really feel confident to move in during daylight hours. If their head, eye, nose, ears are just above that vegetation line, they feel one hundred percent safe. Because Vitals everything is 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 protected by vegetation, but they have their senses still up and above that vegetation line to where they can detect, they can see, smell, hear, what have you. so that right there is all deer really truly need to cover wise height wise to move in and feel safe in It does not require six seven foot tall where you can only see the tips of antlers. For for deer to be moving in during daylight hours. It's not how it works. We can just simply look at the anatomy of that animal and say, oh, four foot tall is 100% efficient and effective at what that is. So what you're saying is little blue is a fantastic option with associated forbs that are going to grow two and a half to three and a half foot tall. I can accommodate that plus have the added benefit of insect attraction and seed production for quail as well as accomplish that security cover and corridor for bigger, larger game animals like a deer.
2: Man, that's right. If we can, if we can install a practice that will benefit multi-species, that's, that's much more preferable (coughs) than, than a a practice that may benefit one species Mm -hmm. and, and marginally at that. And, you know, I'm I'm just thinking about wild turkeys there. Um, yep. you know, a wild turkey hen and her brood, she's not going to take it in a tall switchgrass field, no way. No. Because she has to be able to to peer out and see danger coming. But they will certainly brood in a little blue stem patch that's got ragweed, it's got compass plant or whatever, sure. forbs are in there because they can see out of it and then, you know, spot danger and get out of there. They so you're going to increase your if there's turkeys there, which I imagine there are, yep, yep. you're going to increase your brood rearing capacity right there or at least not prevent turkeys from using it, which you would if you did a a switchgrass monoculture there.
1: That that switchgrass monoculture would essentially be that deer fence for wild turkey.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Especially if they have young if they're if they're rearing a brood and trying to navigate them across the landscape it would be that would be that'd be very difficult and and just simply not used it would not be used by those birds at that time that age yep so but we can yep. we can just simply change the species that we plant and promote there and and accommodate all of that and that's the beauty of diversity
2: yeah absolutely Absolutely, and,
1: and being open in a plan and the goals for a plan to accommodate things. <clears throat> you know, again, we see, oh, if you're created, created a corridor, make it thick, make it nasty, make it as big and tall and whatever as you can be. Now, because then, then, then we're just single-minded and single-focused, and and potentially to the detriment mm-hmm. of of other species. Because it's not the fact that white-tailed deer. Oh, the only species that need to move cleanly across that that wide open turkeys need that too yeah but yep. but if if i have something that they can't move through then they're walking along the edge which is better than nothing but i want them walking through the middle of it where they yes. can navigate through and have overhead protection that's right that's right
2: <clears throat> so um great discussion on the open lands great discussion on the corridors Let's dive into this this piece of ground that is south of that three fingers of crop ground <laughs> and north of the of the chicken barns. Yep. It looks like a major wooded hollow That's it. that that runs through there uh, a, a branch. I don't know if it's if it's a wet weather creek or if it's a, a you know perennial creek or yep. what it is. Uh, but it looks like there's some topography. It looks like it's, <clears throat> it's very well wooded and um There's some great potential for for habitat management. Again, thinking probably it was probably very little disturbance. I imagine it's closed canopy there. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: But um, the cool thing about that is you've got north and south aspects that you can manage different ways. You can provide different vegetation structures throughout that entire piece of ground. Don't manage it the, the right way. Um, there's potential for good bedding area. I imagine that that creek is a cool area in the in the summertime. Yep. So, um, kind of what were you thinking? And I noticed on the on the west side of that, there's a, a yellow waypoint that looks like a south facing knob that that you kind of highlighted. Well, let's start there on that west side. What were you thinking there in terms of management?
1: Yeah. So that that essentially is going to be another um, another bedding thing. And the reason that's yellow is is due to the fact that that let's say <clears throat> kind of see if everyone's familiar we're looking at maps it's essentially a 40 acre kind of cut out on that portion of the probably the west side of the southern portion of the timber that west 40 was clear cut 20 years ago as well and okay. so that west 40 is is 100% closed canopy just like the remainder of that that entire um southern wood block, but the other portion <clears throat> has been thinned with timber by you know excuse me through logging mm-hmm. years ago but is much bigger timber great mixture of oaks heavy white oak red oak um production lots of hickories thrown in there um but this other mixture 20 year old stuff is very heavy tulip poplar very heavy uh red maples Sweet gums, some oaks, but not a ton. So <clears throat> I wanted to color it differently. <coughs> excuse me. For the fact of we're going to dress it differently. There's there's value the further east that you go on this drain. And it is, it is a perennial creek. It is a year-round flowing stream through there. Actually, a pretty decent one. Bigger than what I thought. But um, the intensity... Uh, of management or intensity of uh, forest stand improvement, it's going to be much heavier on the west side Mm as opposed to the east side of this timber. And much of the west side is going to have to be done by the landowner and his son. And a logging crew can come in and do much of stuff to the east and that initial or or the, the... uh, forest stand improvement after uh, bending thickets would be would be cut in or cut from a logging crew is going to be lighter on the west side, excuse me, on, on the east side opposed to the west side because sure. the clear cut situation <clears throat> just invited in a whole new suite of species to grow and take over, and the quick growing species like the sweet gums and tulip poplars. Their percentage of the composition in that timber stand on the west side is much higher. I mean, it's so clear. It's just, it is. <clears throat> I'll say this it's 60, 60% tulip poplar sweet gum on that west 40. Wow. Opposed to 70% oak hickory on the east side. Wow. And oh. so of course we got to attack those differently. Absolutely. Um, and, and and again they're at a rate in a in a um st- point where there's no value on the west side right now. But on the east side there is, so we'll have two different ways to attack it. Let let a crew come in, cut, implement the plan, pull the value out, but allow them to focus in on what they can handle, what they can do through creating another bedding thicket on that south-facing slope. There is a road through there that they can access and hunt around the fringes of that, <clears throat> which is, will be great. Um, yeah. But then take up the intensity of the forest stand improvement afterwards and really hammer it out and change that composition of the 60% tulip poplar sweet gums and and decrease that through felling, girdling, hackersword herbicide change it promote the oak species increase the sunlight through there encourage understory growth and all around just make that wooded drain that much more productive but it will be it will be pretty pretty intensely managed um on that south facing slope because of the ability for the for them to access it based on the road system that they have through there right right
2: so this is a good spot to talk about priorities um everybody i don't know a single landowner that has unlimited time right um, most don't have unlimited money mm-hmm. so folks uh, have to prioritize their their resources whether it be time or money so here's a good example of that uh, with this with this 40 acres that has been clear cut that's going to take uh a, a lot of work to get into a into a, a more functional, usable type ecosystem. Um, it's not going anywhere. Is is yeah. my thoughts, right? Yeah. It's just <clears> going <throat> to continue as it is. If I if I were prioritizing things, I would say, "Hey, guys, get in there and install that bedding thicket." Mm-hmm. But in terms of really prioritizing your resources, let's work work on improving that the the structure of that seventy uh, percent oak hickory timber uh, and make that as productive as possible. The, mm-hmm. the forty acres on the west isn't going anywhere. We've got a bedding thicket in there. We can hunt it a little better, but let's really prioritize our work where we can make the biggest difference and get get more get a more herbaceous community on the ground quicker. that's that's sort of my thoughts. Uh, did you have those conversations with the folks?
1: Yeah, it, it, first, like you said, get those bedding thickets in there that that higher densely stocked timber is growing at a rate that you can afford to put on the back burner for a little bit but get in there to the oaks there's value harvest them to the degree recommended install your roads so that you can go in and burn afterwards that takes the precedence that takes the priority and the trees again in that twenty-year-old clear-cut situation aren't going to be growing at a quick enough rate that you know they can't go back in in a growing season or two and and now let's say not feel as comfortable felling those trees. They can still yep. handle them. They can still deal with them. Yep. They, it, it's it's really pretty easy to do. It's just a matter of <clears throat> saying these next four weekends that's what i'm doing i'm hanging out in that 40 acre block and i'm going to make it really really good but it's just going to take it's just going to take a little bit of time and determination to achieve that um forest and improvement you know with with you know one or two of them working pretty diligently at that so no i 100% uh, agree on on your take there from a <clears throat> priority standpoint um that's that's exactly how i would attack it as well and recommend to these guys
2: all right so you've got a couple of red x's yeah on a waypoint there we haven't we haven't touched on those it's kind of on that, <clears throat> that slope of that of that branch sort of yeah uh, what what were you thinking there
1: those also <clears throat> are going to be some betting tickets that get dumped right on each one of those points i love mm-hmm. putting them on points because that's just naturally where deer are gonna to want to be bedding anyhow. They have the ability with with any wind to <clears throat> you know put their back to the wind, but but bed appropriately on that point and be able to see the other three sides that that wind is not coming from and and really detect all around them. So it's a safe place for them to bed. So if they want to naturally bed there, I'm gonna make it that much better from a cover standpoint. So they're just mm-hmm. <clears throat> key topography features. That we're looking for to add that, but the other reason that that they are there is because of that black dot that has the letter A for access right mm-hmm. by that chicken barn. There's a road that that is just inside that chicken barn or just inside the woods from that chicken barn that runs east and west, <clears throat> mm-hmm. and so they're able to you know get in right by that chicken barn on a north wind, northwest wind, northeast wind doesn't really matter. Right. And be able to step into that timber and hunt the downwind side of one of those bedding thickets. And so uh, it, it, there there is a lot of trails moving east and westward <coughs> along that, that little multiple ridge complex. And um we could clearly see those as as we walked through there and by placing defined bedding in there on those points and choosing to hunt those <coughs> on a north type wind you're you're not disturbing anything at all by stepping in there no all that activity is going to be sandwiched on that ridge complex further south on a north wind during the rut to hunt it anyhow so you're you're essentially able to by having that vegetation type in a in a young forest standpoint you're able to Take all that movement that would that would be moving east and west on that ridge complex, and force it south on a north wind, <clears throat> and and hunt basically that entire thing. Yeah. Well, that's by, that's by, by not disturbing the farm setup at all. right there.
2: Absolutely, that's a beautiful setup with those with those turkey barns and that thin, relatively thin strip of timber mm-hmm. for archery hunting on a you know the rut as as, as bucks are scent checking does that may be bedded. <clears throat> on those points they're going to be a good you know bow shot uh they're going to be within easy bow range because it's just it just looks like the classic kind of funnel point um corridor movement there that 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 a bow hunter dreams about and you can make it so much better by creating bedding tickets to to really attract does to bed in those areas you didn't do it you know, the does may bed randomly wherever or wherever there's decent there's decent bedding cover. But by yeah. establishing those bedding thickets and you can really increase your your success rate as far as seeing deer and, and, and drive movement. I think that's it. I think that's a great setup right there.
1: Yeah, and it's just one of those. <clears throat> it's just one of the no brainers when you're <clears throat> on site looking here. It's like I could blow my wind all I wanted with the north wind uh, you know through there how do i how do i capitalize on this and and it's almost taking like biotic and abiotic factors of this farm and saying okay i got this to work with how can i you know use it to my advantage well sure here we go and then you kind of see there's a little opening to the to the uh east of that yes that's going to be a a nice well-established clover plot there needs to be probably some uh they they discuss low infertility of that soil. <coughs> mm-hmm. They need to do some soil samples and some amending, but, you know, a great perennial clover plot um, surrounded by cover and, and some dense cover, great edge feathering. But but deer coming off of that with the edge feathering in conjunction with that bedding thicket it's, it's is another point to even steer deer and make a couple other, um, you know, stand sites. So, <coughs> You've got multiple stand site opportunities with different winds right there, but really have the option with the terrain topography and vegetation types to steer deer movement where you can get into and hunt and access. And that is, yeah. that is the, I won't say the whole point, but that is one of the top, top points of why we do what we do. Yeah. <clears throat> so there's right. there's one other cool Uh, features on on the property we haven't talked too much about it but they're 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 dotted throughout um the the farm but there's a white x on the um southeast portion of this of this farm um and this is simply a an overgrown field that just was left abandoned a little bit and and it has Mm -hmm. a great mixture frank of of uh what we'd like to see from early successional plant communities there was, of course, there was a couple uh, sweet gums I saw growing, a couple Bradford pears. We addressed those, <coughs> talked about what needed to occur there. Um, but there were some plums. There were some goldenrod. Um, yep. There was a good number of blackberries, some volunteer pines. Um, there was some sumac um, a lot of other great forbs. there's ragweed, I think I remember seeing uh, wingstem, stem um, and then I know I saw growing along the edge of the road here um, some sensitive briar as well so mm. <clears throat> there are some cool plant communities there that were present we wanted to not just overlook say oh well yeah that, that's that's good it's kind of <laughs> tough to deal with, but yeah, no, they have a solid, solid base of some successional uh, plants. There are some that need to be cut and treated with herbicide and killed some that just <clears throat> need to be cut so that there would yep. be some, some structure within that unit, but then just to, you know, apply prescribed fire and keep that manage that site as is. Yeah. Well, there's another
2: example of a very, of a fairly small site in comparison to the farm, but it has components that probably are uh, specific to that site or are found or are only found on that site or, or, or it may have, that may be the only old field on the site. just, just kind of, you know, Um, so, (laughs) so the point is that it's got special components that are not found anywhere else in place. So wildlife, deer, turkey, Bob whites are going to spend an inordinate amount of time there compared to the rest of the area because it's got features that aren't available anywhere else. So Mm -hmm. the point is, is spend some time managing these. Don't just walk away from it and say, no, I'll I'll just let that grow up into a, you know, eventually it'll turn into forest and we'll just deal with it. No, treat some of the invasives that were in there, like the Bradford pear, um, some of the others, the sweet gum, and get in there and do some prescribed fire and keep that in an early successional you in early successional state and I imagine the landowners will see an inordinate amount of wildlife usage compared to its size because there just isn't a lot of that around there. And that's one of the things that I see, and we've talked about this in previous podcasts. We don't see very much land or, or habitat that is in sort of that, that middle Right. Stage of growth that early to mid-successional. It's either bare ground as far as ag or closely cropped pasture or hayfields, or it's tall trees and whatever form, whether it's pine or hardwoods or whatever it is. There's very little of that early to mid-successional uh, habitat, and boy, that is where the sweet spot is, is. for uh, of, of for wildlife. That's that's what they need the most. That's, that's where the most species are going to con- congregate. And so if you've got some of that on your property, wildlife are
1: really going to gravitate to it. And
2: I, I'd really love to see more of that type of have, landscape on, on every piece of property can use it.
1: Yeah, Without a doubt. No, you're you're 100% right. It's just, it is, it's the sweet spot for so many different varieties of, of species, game, non-game. They're just so much crossover and we look at them in such a poor light. And that's, that's what I hope people's minds are, are are shifted and changed as they listen to the, this podcast over, you know, years of, of, of information that we've been given out and saying, man, I, I I thought things were ugly before, but now I just find that they're functional or I find that they're, um, they're the missing piece. It's, it's, it's almost hilarious to me i had to laugh sometimes that like god designed things in our brains in a way that right now a lot of people look at the ugly and just say oh that's ugly but that's the most beneficial piece or missing part element of plant communities that that make the biggest impact for the things that we care about the most that's right it's like right. we just have got to train our eyes to, to realize that, my gosh, it's not—it's not about what necessarily is—is is the most pretty, but yep. what's the most functional? What yep. what what is going to support the most species? <clears throat> and it's and it's a site that we just described right there. And and even though it's close to some residential areas, if you zoom in on the map, you can see, the roof lines and everything there's cover, there's still food. So it's still going to be attractive. It's still going to be utilized by, by yep. these uh, different wildlife species. So we just got to figure out a way to have it on the landscape. And we want it in a, in a, in a, in a way that's not, you know, uh, isolated that, that, you know, allows allows it to function um, for, for more usable space, more, more times than, than not. But most importantly, we just got to have a landscape, and then we'll see wildlife react to it if it's present. That's right.
2: That's right. They can't react
1: yeah. to it if it's not there.
2: <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, that that's that's a very good description of of that. We get more of that on the landscape, and we've got to retrain our eye and retrain <clears throat> our. And you know, you go out there and in in these mid to early successional type landscapes. And you'll jump a deer out of there, you may jump a turkey out of there, quail, but you'll also jump plenty of songbirds, you'll jump yeah. rabbits. It yep. really is filled with life because there's a variety of of, of habitats there that just aren't available anywhere else. That's it. Right. So um, so that was a that was a good rundown. And and, and one of the things that, that strikes me of this piece of property, and, and it happens in every piece of ground is you know. Being a couple hundred acres, it's not a huge piece of property, and it looks like, well, it's got a, a, a wooded component, two sort of major um, cover types there, but man, once you break it down from a topographical standpoint, from a species composition standpoint, there are so many ways to trick out this piece of ground mm-hmm. to Restore natural community function where it's appropriate to increase uh, and, and steer movement to increase deer movement and wildlife movement across a property to to increase hunting strategies to maybe increase um, some some farm income by taking some stuff out of production that's marginal and putting it into CRP. I mean, you can really trick this piece of property out because it it, it and, and it looks the point is if you look at it on a map you really don't see all of the cool things you can you can do to it once you start putting the the, the topographical lines on there getting out and walking the property and looking at the species composition man that post oak savanna side in the north east prop northeast corner is awesome yeah. but you wouldn't you couldn't see that from the aerial photo i can't see that that's any different right. than the timber on the south but, man that's a cool piece of ground That's that's really limited in that part of the country so very much a really so. cool and diverse property that getting boots on the ground and and knowing knowing these knowing the ecology and function of a landscape and knowing these critical um functions you can really trick it out
1: well and that's the that's the the fun part is and you can prep yourself for whatever you want to you know for a consultation then you get on the site and you're like oh wow this is still a little different than what i thought like yeah. you you drive by this place and it doesn't look like anybody else's but you start diving into the the nuts and the bolts of this property what makes it this property and it has its identity it's like wow there's some really cool stuff here and that's our job to show what that foundation is and and that the nuts and bolts of this place are are different and and overlooked because right now it's just closed canopy but but really when we peel start peeling this stuff back and we're seeing some fantastic fantastic uh species and and have some amazing topography to be able to work with that man we've got we've got the potential to do something great here and then the next time five years from now when someone drives by they're like whoa what in the world am i looking at Right, right, it's different. That's what yeah. that's what we want to paint. Um, that's what we want to paint in a management plan. Say, hey, you have this potential. You have this from what we saw. Now it's time to execute. Go get it. That's right. That's so, right, Frank. I appreciate it, man. Absolutely. Hey, this was fun.
2: Um, yeah. <clears throat> kind of doing this. Uh, kind of talking back and forth. And again, I think we agreed, like you mentioned, on nine, ninety percent of this there's some things that i thought about and brought to the table that that maybe you didn't there's some things that you mentioned to me that i thought oh well yeah that yeah that makes a lot of sense you know that that i wouldn't have brought up and that's that's the importance of having uh folks with a with a diversity of of background Uh in terms of of knowing you know what these species need from an ecological standpoint but also knowing what that landscape Probably was historically and how to best manage that and that comes from experience that comes from education but it's but it's critical to have you know it, it, it's i think that's one of the, the cool things that that we at land and legacy bring to the table is, is a diversity of experience mm-hmm. and, you know kyle and i have spent a lot of time in the grasslands yep uh, you guys have spent a lot of time in the east and we can bring all that component together to to really bring bring forth a great finished product
1: all right, all right, you hit the nail on the head that's the way we're going to wrap it up right there like that frank i appreciate sir absolutely take care of yourself matt you too we'll see you all right yeah. Bye. Yay!